What is acupuncture? How does it work? What should I expect? And am I even crazy for considering this in the first place? If you're skeptical, unsure, or simply curious about acupuncture, then you're in the right place. I'm your co-host, Michael Max. And I'm your other guide, Stacey Whitcomb. We're here to help you get a taste and flavor of what you can expect from acupuncture and other related therapies and methods that arise from East Asian medicine. Most of us here in the West did not grow up with acupuncture. It's hard to understand something if you have not had experience with it. Having an inquisitive and skeptical mind, it's a good thing when you're seeking out health care. We're both acupuncturists. We like good ideas and something new. Common questions about acupuncture in everyday simple language. You'll hear from both Michael and myself, but also from other acupuncturists who have enough experience and perspective that they can, in three minutes, share something essential of this medicine so you can consider if you might like to use this natural method yourself. We know that you're busy, so we're looking to bring you a wide variety of perspectives make the point in three minutes. We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everybody, welcome back to Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. My guest today is Steve Given. Steve is a longtime acupuncturist. He currently works at the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine at the California Institute of Integral Studies. That's a mouthful. And he's a dean there. He oversees the clinic. He teaches. He's actually an ex-microbiologist. And his acupuncture practice these days Uh, very much looks at doing supportive care for uh, viral diseases such as HIV, AIDS, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. He also has a real interest in the history of medicine and including Chinese medicine, something he teaches. And we're going to have a conversation today since he's so involved with the education of acupuncturists. Our conversation is going to be basically what it takes to become an acupuncturist. I've had People write into the show from time to time with the inquiry about what do you have to do 
to get into this profession and what is the education look like and how long does it take and what do you study and just all that sort of stuff. So today we have an expert on that particular subject. Steve, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. Well, Michael, thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. It's amazing what we can do with things like Skype. We can sit down and talk about Chinese medicine and not even be in the same time zone. It's amazing. Indeed. I look forward to it. So, first of all, I'm just a little curious. How did you wander your way into acupuncture and Chinese medicine? Well, I was in the microbiology field. And while I was in that field, uh, there are a few conditions, a few diagnoses that we watched them develop in, in our lifetime. And one of them is HIV. HIV dates from a paper by a Dr. Gottlieb in Los Angeles in 1981. And I was in the microbiology field at that time. And it involved otherwise healthy young gay men coming down with a very rare form of pneumonia called pneumocystis crinae pneumonia. And they were found to have virtually no CD4 lymphocyte counts. And so we, we watched that happen from the point of view of microbiology. By the mid-1980s, we knew it was a new virus. And I knew at the time that for years, Western medicine would be poorly equipped to do anything about that infection. And in fact, that's the way it played out early on essentially Western physicians had to wait for something bad to happen that they could treat. And what that led to was the rise of the AIDS era, the early AIDS era. And by the late 1980s, acupuncturists were providing supportive care early on, were able to provide assistance to these patients before something bad happened that they would, that would be treatable by Western medicine. And I literally went into the field to work with these patients. And in fact, early my first papers in the field were published on uh, Chinese medicine and acupuncture. And this led to an interest in other virally mediated diseases and uh, that was a good part of my early career was focused in this area. I've gone on to do other things in the field of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, but that was my entree into the acupuncture field. Um, I still retain an interest in it. I still lecture on it. The world changed utterly in the late 1990s when the advent of the three antiretroviral cocktails, uh, the three drug cocktail first came out based on work by a Dr. Ho at NIH. And overnight, instead of treating HIV and AIDS patients, I was treating the side effects of medication. And so, you know, the world has changed. There is now, in fact, good biomedical interventions that can be taken early Acupuncture still provide uh, supportive care, still provide early intervention, but now it's directed towards making these 
newer drug therapies more tolerable. Right. So when did you actually become an acupuncturist? I started my training in the late 1980s, and my California license dates from 1992. Okay, so you've been at it quite a while. You've, I'm curious to know how you've seen acupuncture education change from the time that you were studying up until this present time. Um, it, it has changed a lot. I began teaching in acupuncture institutions literally as I was graduating, and so I've been teaching for essentially as long as I have been in the field. Yeah, I teach a lot of the Western sciences, or I have taught a lot of the Western sciences at acupuncture schools. And several trends have taken place over the last 25 years. Programs have gotten longer. They've gotten richer. They've increased in rigor over the last 25 years. Biomedical curriculum. The curriculum, a lot of the curriculum that I teach has gotten more rigorous. Early on, the biomedical curriculum, by that I mean anatomy, physiology, Western clinical medicine, pathology, pathophysiology, those courses were originally pretty scanty. And programs that were accredited in the United States would have about 300 hours in the curriculum. And now biomedical curriculum is up to a little over 500 hours, in some places higher than that, and um, is generally stronger. The other thing that's happened, I think, is that more states are requiring the study of Chinese herbal medicine and more institutions are offering curriculum in Chinese herbal medicine. It is still not widely required for licensure. Certainly, California was an early leader in requiring knowledge of Chinese herbs to get licensed. But now, uh, more and more institutions are having curriculum on Chinese herbs, even if the state they reside in isn't uh, requiring acupuncture uh, excuse me, require uh, knowledge of Chinese herbs when uh, licensure is sought. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting thing because many of the state laws uh, allow for the practice of herbal medicine if you have an acupuncture license. But just because you've studied acupuncture, it doesn't mean that you've necessarily studied Chinese herbal medicine. Uh, exactly. And we want to be a little bit careful about our language around this. Chinese herbs, the dispensing, the using of Chinese herbs is universal because Chinese herbs are regulated by the Dietary Supplement Health and Safety Act, DSHEA, published in about 1994, I think. And DSHEA essentially makes herbs food. Anybody can dispense herbs and anybody can go in and buy herbs. What is required by licensure is demonstrating knowledge of herbs for somebody interested in becoming licensed as an acupuncturist. So a few states, including the state of California, require that you demonstrate by testing knowledge of herbs. But in the United States, there's still no restriction on dispensing or buying herbs. 
the way there is on drugs. There are a couple of countries, uh, Australia is an example, where there is drugs, food, and a third category, traditional medicinals, where there is some restriction, but not in the United States. All Chinese herbs are food unless a hazard is demonstrated and then they're taken from the market entirely. Example, fungi, the genus Aristolochia, has now been removed from our armamentarium because untrained people use them inappropriately and people die. Well, we've seen issues like this with uh, mahuang as well, where it's often been uh, sold as a, a miracle weight loss supplement. And, you know, anyone with any background in Chinese medicine knows that we handle mahuang carefully. It's, it's something that requires attention and some finesse. Uh, and you certainly don't want to be taking large doses of it. I, I agree entirely. Uh, Ma Huang has had a little bit more of an interesting uh, pathway through the regulatory nightmare in that it has not been entirely removed. It's just harder to get. But Aristolochia is gone. We cannot use it in the United States. And, and there are a fair number of herbs in China that you see in China that are toxic, especially herbs used in cancer treatment that will never be sold in the United States because it's documented that they're toxic and if used improperly will cause problems. Uh, our job here in the U.S. is to make sure there's good education around herbs, not just for us, but for the public, so that they're not misused and we don't lose them. If it was a more highly functioning Congress, I think it would be ideal if that third rail of, uh, or that third track, I should say, of uh, a traditional medicinal could be put into statute so that herbs such as Ma Huang would have a safe harbor and acupuncturists could prescribe them without them being widely available in weight loss products and uh, other preparations that are sold over the counter. But that does not yet exist in the United States. Nope, not yet. It might be nice to have. But, you know, back, back to this, uh, this thing for a moment about what it takes to become an acupuncturist. I mean, we could do this herb conversation for a long time, and it, uh, I mean, that's subject for a whole other show. For those people that are considering perhaps becoming an acupuncturist, can you give an overview of, of what they can expect this study to look like? and how long it would take to get through acupuncture school. So in the United States, we are currently licensed in 46 states in the District of Columbia. It's quite, we're quite fortunate in the acupuncture field. We're one of the most widely licensed CAM professions in the U.S. And in all but one state, some part of the national exam put out by the NCCAOM, the National Commission for the Certification of Acupuncturists is used uh, to prepare for licensure. The exception is California, which still, to this date, has its own exam. So if you want to be licensed in California, you take the California exam. If you want to be licensed anywhere else, you take the national exam. With the caveat in Maryland, uh, there is one school that if you graduate from that school in Maryland, then you can get licensed in Maryland directly. 
But generally speaking, uh, except in California, you use a national exam. Both the national exam and the state of California require that you graduate from an accredited or candidate institution. And by accreditation, we mean the, the Accreditation Commission for Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine, ACAOM. And ACOM accredited schools come in two flavors. One is an acupuncture program. The other is an acupuncture and oriental medicine program. And the acupuncture programs tend to be a little bit shorter, uh, between two and 3,000 hours. I believe that the ACOM minimum is 2,200 plus hours. They're all above that at this point. And that will give you a master's in acupuncture. The longer degree program, it's usually about 450 hours longer, sometimes more, both covers acupuncture and herbs and is variously referred to as acupuncture and oil medicine or acupuncture and Chinese medicine or acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine. And these longer programs, the accreditation minimum is 2,625 hours. In California, they are virtually all over 3,000 hours. Uh, one program is over 3,600 hours. And what this means to you as an applicant is that you're going to be in acupuncture school for between four and five years. There are a few programs, including ACTCMs, that has an accelerated track, which would get you through the program in three and a half years, but that's a lot of credits every term. And that's a lot of work, isn't it? And a lot of work, yes. This is not somebody that, that works on the side to put themselves through school. So most people take four years, a fairly robust minority take uh, five years. And uh, so this is a lot of credits. Perhaps the longest master's degree in the country. Um, so, and, and it's a lot. So it's about now over 500 hours in biomedical subjects, things like anatomy, physiology, clinical medicine, pathology, pathophysiology, uh, about uh, 450 to 500 hours of herbal studies, um, and uh, obviously a lot of curriculum in Chinese medical theory and acupuncture. Um, uh, most schools still require two years of undergraduate training to get in. A fair number, including ACTCMs, it's three years. That would be 90 undergraduate credits. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily have to have an undergraduate degree to begin your study of Chinese medicine. I, I'm aware of one institution that requires a coming in with a bachelor's degree. But if you don't have that bachelor's degree, you can come to ACTCM with 90 credit hours. In some states, some programs allow 60. I'm a little, I'm curious, when I, um, when I was studying Chinese medicine, it was in the mid-90s, by and large, the folks that were studying at that time, at least at the institution that I was at, we were all on a second or third career. There were very few people coming in like directly from college, uh, going directly to acupuncture school. I'm wondering what that, that mix looks like these days. Well, by experience, Michael was absolutely the same. 
I would suspect that my institution, when I uh, was going to acupuncture school, the average age was at least in the mid-30s. Sounds about right. And the average age has dropped some. Incoming classes today, there's still a, a, a strong number that are on their second career, but more and more students are coming in directly out of undergraduate school. So we get a, a nice spread of folks ranging from their mid-20s to right now I've got one student who is in his late 50s. So I think the spread has gotten larger and the post-undergraduate training uh, group has gotten much, much larger. Uh, but there's still a, a pretty robust number of folks coming in for a second career. We're also getting more and more students that are coming in to acupuncture from a previous healthcare career. So we have a fair number of massage therapists and nurses and even occasionally physicians coming in to get uh, training. Is there any kind of background that it's helpful for people to have if they want to go and study acupuncture in Chinese medicine? Well, so I'm going to speak first to the absolute requirements and absolutely no. So you can have, you can be a humanities major or a liberal arts major. Actually, one of my friends in acupuncture school all those years ago was a dance major. And there are, however, classes that will be helpful if you come in with biology, chemistry, psychology, you know, basic sciences, some basic sciences, those will improve your workload in your first year. Because if you don't come in with those, you'll be taking those classes in your first year. So obviously I, I, had a, I have a degree and graduate training in the biomedical sciences. So when I came in, I didn't have to take any of those classes. And that lowered my workload in the first year. And, and that is still true. If folks are talking to an admissions person a year out or nine months out, um, you know, they may very well say, well, if you're still in school, if you took some biology and some chemistry, even anatomy and physiology at some institutions can be applied towards your degree, then I think that can be very helpful. The advantage of taking the Western sciences at an acupuncture school is sometimes, in the case of somebody like me, is being taught by a licensed acupuncturist. And so we're able to connect it better with your future career. So right now I happen to be teaching pathology this term, and I, I can stash in some Chinese medical concepts and show the connection. Whereas if you went to a regular four-year institution, that, that isn't going to happen. So there's a trade-off with each decision, and, and each applicant will make that decision independently. What do you see as some of the common challenges for people who come in and start learning acupuncture and Chinese medicine? You know, it's, it's such a different frame of reference. It's such a completely different perspective from how we're used to thinking about things. I mean, I can remember in my first probably six weeks, there was, there was one point I, we were studying herbs and I was just throwing my hands up at like, this is impossible. 
I don't even know how to think about this stuff, and I'm already being asked to make sense of it. The common challenges that people face when they begin the study of this. Probably the biggest challenge for a lot of students is cultural. And by that, I mean Chinese medicine, East Asian medicine. So I, have to, I need to be careful here because there are institutions that teach Worsley acupuncture or Japanese acupuncture. Um, they have faculty that teach traditional Korean modalities as well. But to use a broad term, Oriental medicine or East Asian medicine, is that there's it's culture shock. Um, I, I myself came into acupuncture school with both undergraduate and graduate work in the biomedical sciences going back many years. And I spent the first year trying to think in two languages at the same time. So a short story. Where I went to school, they had clinic classes. So in addition to being in the clinic, you were in these cat classes where student clinicians would present their cases and then there'd be a discussion in the class. And my first clinic class was taught by a wonderful, wonderful acupuncturist that we, we all dearly love, Jin Ling Wong. And Dr. Wong was conducting the class and the student pre presented this case involving facial paralysis and all of this. And then Dr. Wong kind of leans forward slightly with a little smile and says, so what's the diagnosis? And my hand shot up and I looked excited and I was squirming in my seat. And uh, Dr. Wong asked what the uh, diagnosis was. And I said, Bell's palsy. <laughs> and Dr. Wong kind of smiled and said, that's very good. Unfortunately, this is acupuncture school. And called on somebody else who gave the correct Chinese medical diagnosis. And it was kind of like this turning point, this epiphany, if you will, of, oh, wait, I can't keep doing that. That's not going to help me. And that was when I was able to turn my, my brain a little bit. And so now I essentially have two sets of shelves, some for biomedical concepts, some for Chinese medical concepts. And the more you play with it, the more you see connections. But they're not really separate. But the intellectual paradigm that each arose in was different. And the processes are, the processes are different. And this is a huge advantage of studying and teaching the history of medicine because my history of medicine class includes both Chinese medicine and Western medicine. And I'm able to draw these connections and these concepts. Well, this is how the Han Dynasty saw this. And this is how the Greco-Roman physicians saw the same concept. So the connections are there, but they're harder to find and require some subtlety. And I think that's the big it takes many students two to three years to finally get comfortable with thinking in this new way. Well, it's literally learning another language. It is indeed. And in fact, here we um, at ACTCM, we require a course in medical Chinese. 
I will say this with a caveat in that the medical Chinese really enhances student success in the study of Chinese herbal medicine. But now, as of 2017, the number and quality of texts available in English on Chinese medicine has grown so much that I, you can, in fact, get a great education in English. 25, 28 years ago, the, there was this feeling that really it was hard to do. There just wasn't that much good stuff in English. But now there really is. But certainly knowing some Chinese doesn't hurt and will enhance your education. Well, and there's... It's true. There's so much that's been translated these days, and there's some really amazing materials out there. And if you want to go read it in Chinese, there's that much more. So it's uh, I'm, I'm just going to plug in for the Chinese and the medical Chinese that uh, the interesting thing, because I, I can read some Chinese, and the thing that I found about it, the vocabulary of medicine is actually fairly narrow. So once you learn the basic grammar constructs and once you, you basically know the words, they get used over and over and over in the same book. So, you know, a lot of people look at this stuff and go, oh, this, this is impossible. But in some ways, it's a lot easier to read Chinese medicine than it is to read a newspaper. Yeah, you know, it, my feeling is this. I, I actually do some translation and I, I am also pretty avidly interested in, in Chinese language. And really, as an educator, I have to weigh the time required to get proficient at it against what else that student could learn towards their future career. Uh, there is an institution in the United States that requires... Chinese language every term that you're in the program. And I've, I've had several graduates from that institution as a colleague, and they pretty universally say it was really interesting and helpful in the program, but it's not like they're sitting around afterwards uh, consulting Chinese language texts. So I think now with the richness of what's available in English, that you can be a very good clinician in just being fluent in English. And, and I, so I, I think at a postgraduate level, uh, uh, Chinese material is available. I know some folks study in China. We have a study abroad segment to our program. And, and so there are opportunities to really begin to dig into some of these other materials. But at the entry level professional degree, you can do a really great job in English. Yes. Well, and so so much of it is learning to think in a different way. That's the real challenge, is getting our brains out of our usual Western paradigm and into this other paradigm that looks at things totally differently. No, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that's the big transition for so many students the first year of training, you're learning about points, you're learning about herbs, 
Um, and that's not so different than other highly specialized fields. I can remember in undergraduate school, I took a year of organic chemistry. And the first semester was, it seemed to be memorizing all of these molecules and all of these structures. And it just went on week after week after week. And it was the same thing. Once you got out of that first head cramming phase, you could start learning interesting stuff. Yeah, but oh boy, that first acquiring the bits and pieces. Exactly. And I think that's the same thing here. You know, students have to acquire the theory, the points, the everything from the theory of yin and yang to where UB67 is located. Right. To one that I love, the organ that has a function but no form. Yes, exactly. And so that one drove me crazy. Once once you begin to get that down, a lot of the rest of the curriculum is revisiting and applying these ideas. So what I tell students is when you first learn Chinese herbs, it's really hard. And then when you learn formulas, the herbs are easier and the formulas are hard. And when you get to internal medicine, the formulas are easier, the herbs are easy, and now it's the internal medicine that's hard. And so things accumulate and process and and when you graduate, you're pretty facile with it. And that's really how it should be. If it were easy, I think it would be less rewarding. So I live in a state, and I, and I know there's other states as well, where you'll see acupuncture all over the place, but it's, it's not people that have been trained in Chinese medicine. In these cases, it's chiropractors. So, you know, while half a century ago, acupuncture was basically unknown here, now you can find it in lots of different places, and it's actually offered by people that may not have a background in Chinese medicine, um, up to and including medical acupuncture from physicians who, uh, well, they, they've got an interesting program. It's kind of a blend. But could you talk to us a little bit about some of the different professions that you might run into who are using acupuncture needles? And and saying what they do is acupuncture, or at least something like acupuncture? That's a great question. And so I'm going to differentiate uh, here somewhat. And these non-acupuncturist providers are divided up into two basic types. And the first type includes folks that have minimal training, but are doing acupuncture. So you mentioned physicians that do acupuncture is based on the model of the Joseph Helms course. And these are two to 300 hour continuing education courses, but there's no equivocation here. These folks are training to do acupuncture. It's a specific type. It's based on what is called French energetic acupuncture because that was the interest of Joseph Helms, who was the physician that started these courses uh, initially. And so they're trained to be acupuncturists. They've got minimal training in acupuncture, but, but they are fully trained clinicians. Chiropractors with as little as 60 hours will do the same thing. A, little, a couple of continuing education courses, and then they can, in some states, legally advertise 
that they provide acupuncture services. Now, you have to be careful here. This varies from state to state. In, in different states, different non-acupuncture providers may in fact be allowed under certain circumstances to do acupuncture. Chiropractors do it. Uh, in Arizona, naturopaths provide acupuncture services. They can call themselves naturopathic acupuncture providers. And generally, these three licensed professions are, are claiming to provide acupuncture services. In virtually all of them, there is much, much less training than is, than is required to become a licensed acupuncturist. And, you know, I think the feeling, certainly I'll speak for myself, my feeling is that, that uh, this is going to be a bit of a challenge because they're less well-trained, they'll be less successful, and may in fact be problematic to the reputation of acupuncture as a form of treatment. However, it's perfectly legal. And in some cases, folks really are devoted to ac providing acupuncture services. I've met several physicians that really, that's a major part of their focus. And, and that's what they do. The other kind of uh, care providing is done by physical therapists, and they'll call it dry needling or something like this, and they will attempt to claim before licensing boards and before um, legislators and to the public that they're not doing acupuncture, they're just using acupuncture needles. And my opinion, which should never be confused with fact, is that they are in fact providing acupuncture services without a license. They are in fact being sued and boards have now in some states determined that they may not do this and they're now in court for doing this. But the physical therapy profession specifically has a lot of money to burn on this and has been working pretty hard at being able to provide these services in, in all these cases, I think it's a form of scope creep, but it's, it's currently happening. And really the consumer, and the consumer is the one that's at risk here. And the consumer needs to educate themselves about the qualifications of somebody who is suggesting that they provide acupuncture services for that consumer, for that patient. The Council of Colleges of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine the CCAOM has provided a really nice fact sheet describing differences in training for various professions claiming to use acupuncture needles. And you can go to ccaom.org. You know, I'll put a link to that on the show notes page so people can just click on it and go get it. Yeah, and that, that's pretty nice. That doesn't really, that's addressing folks who are legally providing the services. I don't remember... I don't think that discusses dry needling because that, that's been out a while. Full disclosure, I'm on the uh, executive committee of the council. Anyway, consumers really need to become educated about providing services and who does it and what are, what, what's their training. It's a, it's a fair question to ask a practitioner. Absolutely. It, and the same thing could be said of seeing an acupuncturist in a state like Washington, 
who I practiced for a number of years. And if they're going to recommend herbs, what is their training in herbs? Because not all licensed acupuncturists are trained in herbs, and many of them are making herbal recommendations. So I think that's that's entirely entirely valid. I think even if you're seeing a fully trained licensed acupuncturist, if you're a cancer patient or an AIDS patient or you have a really severe condition, I think you need to talk to that provider about, well, what's your experience in training in treating what I have? Not all acupuncturists are equally trained in all areas. I, for example, am not the person you go to if you have concerns about fertility support or having trouble getting pregnant. And if somebody calls me, I will refer them to colleagues that spend much of their time working in that condition. And so we all, whether we are providers or patients, you know, can be uh, better communicators about this is what I'm really good at and these are areas where I can find somebody who is really good and could help you. It's good for us to know our own scope of what our practice is. Speaking of scopes of practice and such, what about after graduation? What can someone who's been studying acupuncture expect when they get out of school? What are, what are some of the challenges to making a living as an acupuncturist? Well, the first barrier to being successful is, of course, exams. And all institutions prepare you for taking these major exams. Uh, when you're looking at an institution, one of the things you can ask the admissions office is what are their pass rates on the um, uh, certification and licensing exams. So I, I think that's that's important. Schools vary in their success in pre- preparation. Uh, ACTCM has done a really good job with this. The second thing is licensure. And there's not a lot of parity in the United States in this regard yet. So different states have different requirements and different rules. So you definitely need to be conversant with the requirements for licensure in each state, in the state you want to be licensed in. A good resource for this is the NCCAOM website, the National Certification Commission for Acupuncture and Oral Medicine, nccaom.org has a great page that describes licensure, has a map of the United States with all the states and what their licensure standards are. So that's really important to be aware of. Once you're in a state and when you're licensed, uh, probably the toughest period is the first three to five years because you have to develop your practice you have to develop your niche. Um, I think several things make it more likely you will succeed. One is being careful about expenses. When you are first licensed, this is not the time to sign an expensive lease on a nice, on a nice suite of offices and build your practice from scratch with those kind of expenses. So I think many of the most successful students get into associations, join established practices, um, collaborating with other acupuncturists, physicians, chiropractors, frequently nature class. And 
work in an association and get yourself established and decide where you want to be. Uh, I think it helps to um, have a focus for your practice. We are all trained to be general practitioners. We are all given entry-level training in a wide variety of conditions, but very often students will really become successful practitioners if they have a focus that they're really interested in and focus on because it gives them a focal point for their speaking when they speak to the public. And um, so interestingly, even though I went into the field to work with HIV AIDS originally, my first job was in orthopedics. I got really good at orthopedics for a year or so before I went on to do other things. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, a lot of people think acupuncture is just for pain. Right. And even when I was working with HIV and support care for cancer patients and Hep B and Hep C, a lot of them originally came to me for pain. And I would use that and then say, well, let's talk about these other things as well. And I think the, the, the last thing I would say is in the beginning, you need to really get good at speaking and find opportunities to speak. Sometimes it's to nurses, nursing groups, and by the way, the saints of the healthcare field at large are nurses. They're your patient's advocates, they're your advocates. When I've been, I've, I've been credentialed in like 10 hospitals and medical centers. And first thing I would do every time is I do outreach to, speak to, and provide care to nurses because they are just incredibly valuable allies in the healthcare profession. Physicians are important. Administrators are important. But nurses were the original patient-focused care providers. When the rest of us were focused on who can I needle, who can I give urge to, nurses are providing patient-centered care. So be comfortable with speaking. Have some talks prepared. People have even gotten started in this by speaking at Toastmasters. I've never done that, but I, I've had a, a folks that really got comfortable speaking. They get up early in the morning and they have these groups where they meet and they speak to each other and they're both practicing speaking to each other and they're sharing information. They've gotten patients out of these meetings and they get really, really comfortable speaking to people who may know nothing about acupuncture in Chinese medicine. All right. Those all sound like some, uh, Good things to think about for the beginning practitioner. Steve, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we close this thing down? Well, well first, I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity. It's been really fun talking to you about the field of acupuncture and Chinese medicine. I think that if the listener is uh, thinking about the field, certainly I've talked a lot about my institution, but I think wherever they are, wherever they're thinking about attending, to really learn about the institution, check out several institutions, talk to folks in admissions, a lot of places you can sit in a class and really think about, is this what you want to do? And is this where you want to study? And if you're in a program, I really 
think about where you want to practice and uh, what you want to focus on in your practice and really learn about what interests you as a provider. You'll be much more excited when you really enjoy talking about what you're doing and how you're doing it. Um, I, I think that sometimes when people start an endeavor like this, there's a kind of a rigid, well, I'm just going to do what I'm told and move through this. And yes, there's stuff you have to learn, tests you have to pass, but really be thinking about what interests you. Yeah. Think about the thing you love to do. I agree. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Steve, again, thanks for being on the show. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'll look forward to hearing more of your podcasts. hope you have enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. If so, please take a moment and visit www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. Doing this helps other people to find the show. Also, you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation. Thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next time. 